Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. happens 
key question, of course, if you're trying to figure out what can you count on for future realization, whether it be oil or gas, and you're trying to do this, spend two-thirds of your cash flow and have that or increasing production, is what, what can you count on for the future price of oil? If you look at the future curve for oil, as I mentioned, about 65, something like that, two years out, three years out. Gas, it's around 350, it's good 80 or 90 cents more than it was, say, looking back the last few years in the 270, 280 range. If that holds, that'll be very good. It will mean that, especially when these companies establish dividends, there'll be some more upside in these prices. As far as worldwide gas prices, LNG, which looked really kind of in panic mode, especially in Europe, but also in Asia because of China, is backed off. I mean, in both places, it was trading over $30 in MCF, and now it's it's back down to 26 27 28 So the, some of the panic is receding. I think part of that is a little warmer early weather in Asia, North Asia, and also in Europe, and generally panics don't last. So... I think that's healthy for the market. You know, your comparable price at Henry Hub is three fifty. I mean three fifty plus two dollars to liquefy plus two dollars to transport is still, you know, very high price compared to our price. Another way to look at it is five dollars, which is what they you know, where they're where they're headed, times six, which is a BTO equivalent, see twenty five dollar LNG is equivalent to hundred and fifty dollar oils. So that's the oil and gas story. On interest rates, I think that Broad consensus is that the Federal Reserve is at least six months late in starting to taper. I haven't seen what the, the decision was today or how Chairman is handling, uh, Jay Powell is handling the uh, press conference, but they're just late. I think what that means is that the tapering process, rather than buying $120 billion a month, 40 of, 40 of, of mortgage bonds and 80 of uh, U.S. Treasuries, They'll come to a lower number, but I think because they, they must know that they're behind, uh, that the tapering will happen quicker. Like, uh, rather than reducing that 120 billion over 10 months, maybe the 120 billion will, will reduce to a, you know, in effect nothing, uh, or just reinvestment of the interest coupons and the, uh, principal payments. Uh, maybe, maybe it'll happen over six months. A good question is, Will that cause higher rates, the 10-year rate being about 155 or 160 or wherever it is? And the answer is somewhat, but if you think about it, there's still going to be an awful lot of liquidity in the, in the market. I mean, the amount of excess reserves in the banking system that were lent back to the Federal Reserve because they couldn't figure out what to do with it was $1.5 trillion at the end of last week. I mean, that's, that just shows you how much excess liquidity, uh, uh, you know, that is in the system. As long as the Fed funds rate and the, or the repo rate stays very low, you know, like 25 basis points or so, uh, how high can your 10-year rate get? Because uh, whether you're a hedge fund or a bank or, you know, whatever trading operation you have, you can borrow short, very cheap, and, and invest long and, and do some hedging to protect yourself against the long position declining. So could you have 25 basis point federal funds rate and you know about the same repo rate and have 2.5% 10-year treasury rate? I mean, I guess you can, but until the Fed fund rate starts to go up, I, I think that's 
that's going to limit the amount of increase in the 10-year rate. The important thing there is that very unlikely, forget what stocks we're talking about, whether we're, because we're going to get into this with Mike, whether you're talking, you know, Microsoft and Google and Amazon and Apple, uh, or whether you're talking a broader mix of companies, there's no question that having these very low interest rates have caused uh, an inflation in valuations. And, and now, based on uh, consumer price index, uh, the, the, uh, the, or, or the uh, personal consumption index, the thing that the Fed watches, I mean, we're, 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 you know, each month it's 4%. I mean, you know, remember the target was to have it be 2%. Now it's 4%. I mean, the, the Fed and, and the initial thinking that this was transitory, you know, who knows what, what transitory means. I think unless and until the Fed funds rate starts to be increased, which the Fed can do, you know, I, I, I don't see that 10-year bond gain much beyond, you know, another 100 basis points or something because of the carry uh, trade. What does that mean for equities? Well, you know, I think what it means for equities is being a business that, just like we talked about oil and gas, that's increasing its cash flow uh, organically and generating free cash flow. And... Before I turn it over to Mike, I just want to comment. I mean, Mike's done a fantastic job of, 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 of finding companies that have recently come public that uh, have good balance sheets that didn't need to come public. But almost, And a lot of these things are software businesses. But they're security software businesses. They're software businesses specialized in a particular industry. Uh, they're, uh, um, you know, broad companies like Snowflake or Salesforce that are, you know, that are providing services one of the ways they get looked at, and you know this from Mike's notes or from discussions we've had on these calls, is you measure them times revenue. Well, you're automatically wrong if you start talking times revenue. You have to be talking times cash flow. Uh, and uh, and then you measure them by revenue growth. Well, you, you don't want to measure revenue. You want to measure free cash flow growth. In other words, the ability to pay dividends. So in order to adjust to cash flow or, or free cash flow, you add back some of the marketing budget, some of the R&D budget. Mike and I have talked yesterday about this, and, and Mike will have a couple more companies and some other commentary. But is that, is, are you, are in doing that, are you coming up with the right picture of what a business is worth? Because maybe these businesses are pretty marketing intensive. Maybe that having additional algorithms or programs or software uh, developed with the R&D. Maybe that's just part of the business. So maybe it's the wrong thing to do. And uh, the businesses that we really admire, that, that everyone's made a lot of money, including Mike has made a lot of money on, are businesses where after marketing, after R&D, they're generating free cash flow. Case in point being NVIDIA, but you could also say Amazon, you could say Apple, you could say Microsoft. And so with that, go over to Mike, just like to get give you a bit of insight on possibly making a mistake in not focusing closely enough on cash flow and dealing with adjusted cash flow and adding some of these expenses back. With that, over to you, Mike. Okay. Well, yeah. Uh, the first thing I guess I'll say is that anytime I do look at a company, I've, I, I look at multiple methods of valuation. And typically, at, at the very least, it is a, a DCF valuation and a relative. So I kind of treat these as the relative valuation. So just one part of the puzzle. The reason it's 
it's getting a lot of attention and becoming the standard is people are trying to understand these companies that grow so quickly off of a relatively low base of operation expense. So think about Zoom, for example, when the pandemic hit, they like maybe tripled or quadrupled their business, but their costs did not grow that fast. So they generated a ton of additional free cash flow. So that that's why people look at things this way. You know, unless you're doing some short-term strategies, you wouldn't want to do all of your investing on relative valuations. And personally, and I know Hunt as well, we focus on trying to buy stuff we're going to own for a long time. But it does tell us something about what the market is looking for. You know, week to week and you know, post-pandemic versus pre-pandemic, we're seeing increased median multiple of next 12 months revenue, 15.6x currently. Uh, remember that that average over the past 10 years is is closer to a 10x. So, you know, that's representing two different things. And I'm going to put an article in our email this week about this because that was actually mentioned very specifically. And we've discussed it slightly before in that the, what we're coming to understand is that the nice thing about these software companies is that they are capable of growing faster over a longer period of time than was previously understood. And I I think that's the important point. You know, you think about a manufacturing company is going to have to expand production. Uh, In order to expand production is going to have to set up additional manufacturing capabilities. And sometimes those things just don't scale quite as easily as software does. One thing I might be able to put into his uh, email, there's an article in this uh, week's edition of The Economist and makes an interesting point. It's like buried halfway through the magazine, but it makes an interesting point that the the people who have built out uh, the cloud capacity, Amazon Web Services, uh, Microsoft with Azure, Google, I guess, is number three, um, they uh, have facilitated the growth of these software companies because Think of it, just the point Mike was making about a manufacturing facility would have to build more factories. You're able to, by using these cloud services, to expand very quickly without too much front-end capital because Amazon is out there doing what Amazon always does, which is protecting their market share by reducing their pricing. And then Microsoft, Google, other people trying to be in the cloud business or and cloud services, which is really, I mean, Mike, Mike will probably correct me on this, but the way when, when I think of cloud services, I think really you're just building the servers for the client and doing it in scale. And so that, for example, here at Yorktown, we continue, we're old fashioned, I guess, we continue to maintain our own servers. So, and, and we have duplicity. I mean, we have our servers in three separate locations, uh, two on the East Coast here and one all the way in Texas just for backup. But, you know, I guess we can afford to do that if you're more concerned about what the cost is. And also, I know anecdotally, if you're more concerned about security of not being hacked, you may use Amazon Web Services. Well, if you're, you know, a one of these software businesses we've been looking at and you want to grow very quickly, you don't have to worry about that investment because you just, you know, I mean, if you're Snowflake, you just use more AWS or use more Azure. Now, 
have I, have I, is this a naive, simplified version of what is meant by cloud computing, Mike? And over to you. No, not at all. I mean, that's that's essentially their the the goal and the reason why AWS wouldn't be a good necessarily a good competitor to Snowflake, for example. Yes, they offer data warehousing products that run on those their infrastructure, but they're they're good at different things. Where um, or Snowflake's very good at a very specific part of the data stack, and they know the customers intimately, and they develop their products specifically to meet those needs. Um, and that and that often or that actually kind of provides a good bridge to what we're talking about today. Is we're going to continue our conversation about vertical SaaS, and the advantage to these is that these companies are developing solutions specific to industry verticals, meaning where some companies provide services for a particular function, these companies are providing it to a specific vertical under the assumption that that specific vertical has unique things about it that a broad-based solution wouldn't be able to provide. So before I jump into these, Hunt, do you, do you have any more, uh, anything else you want to cover oh, before we jump no, in? Oh, no, absolutely. I is that uh, location on servers? We do. I mean, there are specific service, services that are developed for people like us in the private equity business, and we use them. And it is absolutely the case that the quality of the software that, that, that we can rent or buy or whatnot, where it comes from someone who's just focusing on what private equity firms do. It's just higher. I, I don't see how how a Google or a Amazon or a Microsoft can compete. And just that's just from personal experience. It, there's no question. I I also think probably your your R and D expense per dollar of revenue or your marketing expense per dollar of revenue is probably going to be lower if you are concentrating on one industry. It's just easier to I mean marketing's easier, R and D's easier. Or if not easier, more cost competitive. I think it must. Be, I mean, it just must be the case. That's a great segue because I'm going to talk about both of those those pieces in particular and how they are actually lower. So with that, I'll go ahead and get started. Um, so we want to talk about today uh, are called Procore, and the ticker on that is PCOR. Procore IPO'd May 24th, 2021, 67 a share. It's currently trading in the 90s, a market cap of around $11 billion. Its enterprise value over next 12-month revenue multiple is about just over 20 The company makes software very specific to the construction industry. Their tools are really for large-scale construction projects, whether that's buildings or infrastructure. That market generally tends to be dictated by the owner or investor in a given project. The different management teams and different building teams and architects all might use the software to, to collaborate. Specifically, they provide services for pre-construction, project management, resource management, finance, and financial management. The revenue model is a little bit different than most software as a services companies. Instead of charging per seat, per user, they charge a fixed fee for each software module with pricing based on the number of 
products and the annual construction volume contracted to run on the platform. I think this is an interesting point because they actually really want you to bring more users into the platform because they feel that drives some benefits overall. Specifically, one, it helps facilitate collaboration. So if you had to pay an extra fee for every single sub trade that came onto the project, you might be hesitant to add that sub onto the platform. In this case, it's based on volume. It's it's all charged under one. The second reason that's important is it provides exposure to the product across the industry. Uh, so as these different trades and different different layers of the construction progress all get to use their product, they may bring it and suggest it and get comfortable with it uh, in future projects. So construction is an interesting market as, a, as far as like a vertical is an interesting area to invest for a couple of reasons, mainly because it's a large market. Construction versus other industries spends far less on information technology compared to the average. There's certainly opportunity to make that better. The other thing that's kind of an interesting indicator is the labor productivity growth in the construction sector is about has been about one third of the global rate over the last 20 years. So another reason to think that this may be a good area for the right types of technology solutions. The thing that caught my eye about them is that in some senses, it's very similar to Viva, the company we discussed last week. Viva operates in the pharmaceutical industry, and there's lots of regulation and specific knowledge for different pieces of the, of the puzzle. Construction in that sense is quite similar in that there's a lot of specific knowledge and regulation in the case of construction on a local basis and regional basis. From a valuation perspective, it's not cash flow positive unless you add back 50% of R&D and sales and marketing. But versus some of the others, like we talked about how uh, Snowflake spends about 90% of revenue on sales and marketing. Procore spends 56% and uh, it spends 43% on R&D. So less capital intensive when it comes to their expenses. Just give us the symbol again, because I know last week people uh, missed it, but because they didn't know the symbol. Oh, yes. It's, it it's P-C-O-R. Now we've got five minutes to do the second one. Okay. So the next one's called EverCommerce. EverCommerce is driving digital transformation across multiple industries in the service economy. Their solutions help service-based businesses accelerate growth, streamline operations, and increase retention. The company IPO'd at the end of June, raised $325 million, and has a market cap of five point three billion dollars today and the multiple of next 12 months revenue is 10 and a half x the the thing that caught my eye about this company is that if you remember last week we discussed another uh, another company called uh, appfolio which primarily built software in the property management industry they also used to own a product that was relatively similar in the to service law firms. They spun that out. They they actually sold that company to a private equity firm, I believe. And all, uh, my conclusion there was that it's just too hard to do two different verticals under one roof. Now, EverCommerce actually has three different verticals under one roof, and I, I'm going to quickly run through them because there's. I think they figured out a way to do this the right way. So different verticals require different 
vertical specific functionality, but all businesses require solutions that enable them to perform three key functions. And this is where the company focuses. Uh, The first one is marketing. The second one is business management. And the third being customer engagement. So with that in mind, the company has three products targeted at three specific verticals, home services, health services, and fitness and wellness. And their software stack for the most part, works across all of those, aside from a couple specific modules for each of those verticals. So the, the first vertical is EverPro, which is for field service and home improvement professionals. The second one, EverHealth, that's for uh, healthcare providers. And the third one is, is EverWell, which is for salons, spa, fitness centers, and wellness centers. Again, the the key thing here that I think is interesting is that the marketing lead generation, lead capture, marketing automation, sales enablement, appointment management, customer relationship management, all that's standard across all three verticals. But there's specifics, like for the fitness vertical, for example, they have a module for member management and programming and facilities and employee management. So there's a few specific things that are important, but the other stuff can be the same. So it's an interesting way to scale the model. What I like, business management is a key differentiator versus somebody like HubSpot, where uh, HubSpot is relatively generic to the business. They focus on SMB, which is a huge market. They have the opportunity to expand into additional product verticals. Sales and marketing is only 17% of revenue, although Mm -hmm. they do a lot of acquisitions, and those acquisitions help them drive additional customers. So that's kind of an interesting customer acquisition strategy. R&D is only 10% of revenue. So again, they, they've found a different way to approach these verticals. Um, it is actually cash flow positive, even if you don't deduct sales and marketing in R&D. Two cons that I'll point out, and then we'll wrap up, is these are highly fragmented industries and may be hard to reach with a traditional SaaS-type sales force. And uh, the last thing is that just that their gross margins are slightly lower than than your average company at sixty five percent. Well, we we've gone through the thirty minutes. I know uh, I know that uh, we're all learning more companies. In closing, I just say learning these companies makes sense. They may be <clears throat> expensive. Some of these have recently come public. You may want to watch a few orders of, of results to get up their confidence that they have a you know a moat a proprietary position but no one can complain who who, who calls in every Wednesday at 3 30 that we're not coming up with a lot of companies to add to the inventory of companies to learn and watch and then at some point I suppose especially maybe after the third quarter numbers are in we're going to have to re- reconnoiter over the companies that uh, we've discussed and see who really seems to be doing well. In other words, if we have a scale of one is very good and uh, three is middling and five is not so good, perhaps we can, uh, without getting that specific, can have a view on how these companies are progressing in the first couple of quarters after they've become public. In the meantime, everyone stay healthy and take care and we'll talk next week. Bye-bye.
Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Thank you.